Good morning. <laughs> Great to see all of you and those of you who are watching online, both live streaming and on demand uh, a little bit later. Well, um, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn to Romans chapter 6. We, we like to say that understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery. And so we get the privilege of gathering together uh, in large groups and small groups to take a look at the Bible and to see what it says and what it says to our own lives. And I think today's uh, sermon is going to be not only one where it speaks to what the subject is at hand, but a little bit on how to read the Bible a little bit better, how to, how to come to it and understand it and not, and not mis, misread it. So we're in the third week of a series called Gospel Resilience. It's uh, one of four series that we're doing through the book of Romans. So we'll do a series and then we take a little break and do something else and a series and a break and a series until we've worked our way through. So the focus of this series is Romans 5 through 8 and we're in Romans chapter 6 and we're going to cover uh, the whole chapter today. So today we're going to use our imaginations a little bit. We're going to look at at the prodigal son from a little bit of a different angle, the prodigal son story. Uh, we're going to explore why sin simply doesn't make sense. That's the big idea of this chapter. It's just to say for Christians, it just doesn't make any sense uh, to sin. And then we're, we're um, going to look at why you can't really win the battle with sin by simply understanding that it doesn't make sense. In other words, it's a limited argument. It's part of understanding how to do battle with sin, but it's not the whole picture. And uh, it's just part, one part of a much larger strategy. Uh, so before we, we jump into the sermon and into the passage, we're going to pray as we always do for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word into our hearts and empower us to live it. And this prayer is based on Psalm 136. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word tells us again and again of your mercy, your goodness, and your faithfulness to us. We know that your word is true, and we know that you are a God who keeps his promises. By the power of your Holy Spirit, guide us in your truth. Remind us of your love. Lead us on the path you have for us, and keep us close to you. So no matter the circumstance in our lives, we would bring honor and we would bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Romans chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and we're using the New International Version uh, in case you're using a smartphone or tablet device. So I want you to imagine with me the story of the prodigal son, but we're going to look at it uh, as if, or we're going to look at it from the angle of what happened two years later, and, uh, and just pursue one possible storyline that could have happened two years later. Now, in the story of the prodigal son, just in case you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a young man who goes to his father, and he says, I would like my inheritance now so that I can leave, which is a very insulting thing to do, probably in any age, but at that time, very insulting thing. But his father gives him his inheritance. He leaves. He wastes the money. Uh, famine hits, finds himself without work, without food. He takes a job feeding pigs. He finds himself knee-deep in manure when he decides, you know, I could probably go back to my father and take a job, get a job, and I would be way better off working for my father than I am here. He'll never take me back as a son, but maybe, maybe he'll take me back as 
a worker. And so he heads home, and his father sees him at a distance, and his father runs out to him, and his father welcomes him as a son and throws a huge party for him. But imagine a couple of years later, son is settled back in to working on the family farm and the daily grind of working on a farm, and he hates it. He hates it as much as before, before he had left. He resents, resents every day of his life. He's bored out of his mind, and he feels stuck. He feels like his life is going nowhere, and he hates his life. He thinks it would just be more tolerable if I could do my job during the day, and I could go into town and live my own life, kind of you know, party and do all the things that I was doing before. But I can't because it's a podunk town that doesn't have any fun in it. And, and number two, word will get back to my dad and he'll kick me out of the house. There's no way he's going to put up with that. So he feels stuck and he's thinking about it every day as he's doing his work. And it occurs to him, you know, the famine is over. People have probably gotten their feet under them. There's probably someone that he knows he could get a job from. He can work hard all day and then he can party all night and he can have his life back again. So he leaves with no plans of ever coming back home. And as he leaves and he makes new friends, he tells them about his life back on the farm. He tells them it was just horrible. You, wouldn't, you just can't imagine the difficulties of working on a farm. And not just that, the, the dysfunction of the family I lived in. My father never got me, never really understood, never understood what my needs were. And my family, they were so judgmental. My older brother, he was terrible. He never quite accepted me back. I could tell he pretended like he did, but I could tell he didn't. He might even start a podcast for other people who have left the family farm. So it sounds a little bit familiar, I think, because we've heard stories like this, not about the farm, but we've heard that about faith, and we're talking about resilient faith. And Jesus even prepared us for stories like this when he told the parable of the four soils, we looked at it week one of the series. Four different kinds of soils, the seed gets dropped, only one soil, there's only one soil where the seed takes hold and grows and there is our harvest. So this series on Romans 5 through 8 is about a faith that is resilient, the kind where the prodigal comes back home and two years later he's still there, and five years later he's still there, and 20 years later he's still there. And he's not only just there, but he is thriving, thriving, having gone back to his family and his home. Romans 5 through 8 explains how that works, because it has a certain way that it works. And the short answer is this, is faith that is resilient is rooted in the gospel. Now, one of the things that we try to do here over and over again is remind everybody what the gospel means because it's more than just the message of salvation. Gospel has come to mean in many of our minds that story of how it is that we can be made right with God. And that is part of the gospel. It's an essential part of the gospel, but it's not the whole story. So the short answer is a little less short. But it is that faith that is resilient is rooted in the gospel, which is the whole story of how God rescues and restores us and the entire creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And I drive that home over and over again because we miss so much of the message of the Bible when we don't understand that. 
We talk about being gospel-centered, and we've shrunk the gospel down into one little thing. And we will not understand. We won't understand what we talked about in Romans chapter 5, about having hope in the midst of suffering, and that suffering can actually strengthen our hope, unless you have that perspective. And you will not understand the whole second half of Romans chapter 8, which is considered by many to be the greatest chapter ever written, unless you have that broader gospel perspective. So let's begin by looking at the opening verses of chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. Now remember, this whole chapter is going to be driving home. It just doesn't make sense for a Christian to sin. All right. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. For if we have been united with him in, uh, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. All right. So um, in this chapter, Paul is just driving this home. He's driving home this idea that it just doesn't make any sense. And so what's happening in this narrow band of what he's trying to do in Romans chapter 6, in the context of Romans 5 through 8, he is reasoning with us. Part of a resilient faith is being able to reason through, you know, why am I tempted to do this? Why would I do this? Why would I go in this direction? And that's what he's doing. But it's not the whole story. You will not overcome sin by reason alone. And so I want to put that warning out there um, uh, for, for several reasons. I'll go into that in a moment. But look at verse 10 for a moment because you'll see just how much this argument is based on reason. So 610. The death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's appealing to our reason, and he's telling us to use our use your minds. Just, just realize you are dead to sin. So live in that reality. When he says count yourselves, actually that term is, is a term from the accounting world. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his translation of this, uses the word calculate. <laughs> calculate this. All right, so he's, he's appealing to our reason. He's appealing to our minds to think about this. The whole passage is about re reasoning. Does it make sense to sin? Do the calculation. If you do, you will see that you are dead to sin and that you are alive to God. And you don't need to sin anymore. All right, just doesn't make sense anymore. And we're going to look, the majority of the sermon is going to be, about the reasons why sin doesn't make any sense anymore. But that, that isn't all that the Bible says. Uh, if you treat it that way, you are misreading the Scripture. You're misreading the Scripture. A few years ago, several books came out. It seemed to me that there were a lot of books. I don't know if it was in the late 90s or early 2000s. But several books came out that were planted in this passage, Romans 6. And it seemed that all of them were communicating, at least I read them that way, were communicating that here is the magic formula to beating sin. All you need to understand is your identity 
in Christ and the freedom that you have in Christ. And if you understand this, it's a cognitive approach. If you understand this, then you, you've got it. You've got sin by the tail, and you're going you're gonna to do really, really well. It was stated, as, at least as I've stated, it was a false premise uh, and a, that leads to a false promise and that leaves a lot of people with dashed expectations because it's not that simple. So reason is part of the picture, but so are milestones in our lives, like baptism and practices that we have in our lives, like Bible reading, corporate worship, face-to-face community, and personal spiritual disciplines are part of the answer to sin in our lives. And this is really important. In some cases, we're helped in the battle against sin by seeing a counselor, by going through treatment, by exercising, by owning a pet or medication. There are all kinds of things that come into this battle. God has given us all kinds of resources to battle uh, with sin. And so we have to lean into the whole counsel of God. And the interesting thing is, even though chapter 6 is inundated with reason, there are going to be these little statements that Paul makes that point towards the other practices that are part of the big picture. And we'll stop and look at those along the way. So, Paul says sin doesn't even make sense for a Christian because, number one, we're no longer united to sin. We are now united to Christ. This, this idea runs actually through the whole chapter. It uses two very important concepts. One is union with sin, and the other one is union with Christ. Um, the, the, the whole idea of union with sin is something that I don't think most of us, you know, we rarely think about. Um, it's not a concept for some reason that I feel I've been exposed to, or uh, union with Christ is a doctrine that I think certain denominations emphasize, certain movements within Christianity. I think the movement, at least, that we're a part of doesn't seem to emphasize it very much. But union with sin uh, means that we were not only pre-Christ, we not only used to sin, but we were people who lived in sin, in sin. And Paul is saying we no longer live there. We live in a new place. We live in Christ, union with Christ. We did a theology series, if you were here with us back in, I think it was in January, we did a theology series, basic foundational theology. We used the emblems of the infinite king book and all that, if you remember that. And we spent one week on the doctrine of salvation. And when we came to the doctrine of salvation, we talked there's like seven or eight major doctrines that fit under the doctrine of salvation. And one of them is union with Christ. We talked about the fact that we don't really think about it that often. We talk about part of the union with Christ when we say, in, I think, again, in our tradition, we talk about inviting Jesus into our life and that Jesus and the Holy Spirit live in us. And that's true. The Bible speaks of that. But the Bible speaks far more about us being in the Spirit, us being in Christ. Talks about it way more than about Christ being in us. In fact, when we were back there, theologians say that may be the most comprehensive of all the doctrines of salvation. It kind of like, really in some senses, everything else fits under that. And then this passage just doesn't just talk, and the rest of the New Testament doesn't just talk about being in Christ, it also uses the word, the preposition into, 
and it uses the preposition with and other prepositions like that. So if you're in Christ, which means you're a Christian, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ, then you are baptized, verse 3, into his death. You're baptized into his death, and you have been united with him in death. That's what it says in verse 5. Now, notice Paul doesn't say, that is, of course, if you're baptized. Because it's, it's like a total, in, in Paul's day, an oxymoron to say an unbaptized believer. It just doesn't make any sense. What, what are you talking about? Why wouldn't you get baptized? Why wouldn't you? I mean, the church has practiced baptism. Why wouldn't you get baptized when you become a follower of Jesus, given that Jesus said, if you follow me, get baptized? <laughs> I mean, just at that most simple level, Jesus said to do it. Get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why, why wouldn't you do that? So um, he's just assuming all followers of Jesus have been baptized. And so being united with Christ and baptized um, means not only that we have died to sin, but look at verse 5. Uh, it says, for we have been united with him in a death like his, so we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we have that two sides of the same coin. We're dead to sin. We are alive in Christ, and we will have a resurrection like his. So to be in Christ means alive in him and dead to sin. So N.T. Wright uh, uses an analogy in an explanation of this that I think is really really helpful. He says, living in accordance with a change of status requires that you recognize the change of status. Okay, let's stop there a moment. There has been, when we become followers of Jesus, we are transferred out of the kingdom of this world. We're transferred out of being in sin to being in Christ, united with Christ. That's a change of status. God sees us in a different way. I mean, we can go on a long time about Jesus. God sees us. When he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You know, it's like Christ took our sins. Our sins are like over on the cross with Jesus. But he sees us as righteous and right with him. So living in accordance with the change of status requires that you recognize it and take steps to bring your actual life into line with the person that you have become. Okay, here's the analogy. When someone gets married, they may well not feel very different, but changes occurred to which they must now conform. Promises have been made. Those promises can be broken, but they can't be unmade. <laughs> All right. So he's saying, when you become a follower of Jesus, your whole status has changed. Do you see it in all of your life? No. It, that's what spiritual growth, part of what spiritual growth means is that you start bringing your life in line with who your new identity is and who you are in and what your life is and what your new status is. That's what, what it is. Same thing with marriage is you begin to change your actions. Oh, I really need to consult someone before I do something. I really, because that would be the kind thing to do, you know. We do that for each other now and all those kinds, those, all those kinds of things. So, Paul says sin doesn't make sense because we're no longer united to sin, but we are now united to Christ, all right? So we, we need to live that way. So second, sin doesn't make sense because sin has lost the power it once had over us. Sin had a power over us. And um, so look at verse 6, beginning of verse 6. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. He just dropped a line there that a lot of people went, hmm? what? And um, a lot of his readers. And so he takes the whole chapter seven to explain what that one little phrase means and the implications of it and all that. So we'll be looking at that before too long. All right, so, um, or next week, I think. Uh, anyways, um, notice uh, that he's doing more here than appealing to reason. He doesn't, he doesn't explore it, but he does give us these little clues about what else goes into this battle with sin. Look at, look at verse 13, partway into verse 13, where it says, offer yourselves, the first offer yourselves. So offer yourselves to God so that to, as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, he doesn't tell us what that means. What does that look like, offer yourself to God? Um, what, what, what does that specifically entail? He doesn't hear, but Paul is doing this throughout all of Romans. We've seen this. He drops an idea and then he develops it later. So when we get to Romans chapter 12, many of you have memorized the passage, but it says something like, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then the rest of the chapter describes what that very specifically looks like. And it looks like things like this. You should be renewing your mind. You should be serving your fellow believers using the spiritual gifts that God gave you. You should be devoted to one another, devoted to one another. You should be honoring each other, speaking about the congregation. You should be faithful in prayer. You should be a person who welcomes other people into your life, hospitality. You should be a, hospita a hospitable person. That's what it means to offer your life to God. And you can't live for God. I mean, all the things that explains what that one little phrase means, means you can't do this in your head. You, you, can't, you can't just have the right ideas. You can't just watch podcasts, sermons online and think, I'm getting it. Yes, I'm getting it. I'm, I've got this renewed. It's so much more than just renewing your mind. It's, it's something that's done as part of God's family with each other. Offer yourselves and offer every part of yourself also means fighting sin isn't just about reasoning, it's about action. And the way I would grab the whole thing, I would say it's an immersion 
in a life devoted to God and his kingdom, but doing it together with God's family. That's how you do it. So there's a new study. Well, actually, it's not that new. It's about, um, I thought it was a new study, but I checked my sources this morning. And uh, it's probably about a five-year-old study that LifeWay did looking at, uh, looking at what is the difference between uh, kids that grow up in the church or kids that grow up in a professing Christian family and those that and stay with the faith versus those that walk away from their faith, resilient faith. What's the difference? And the, the person who was reporting on the findings, one of the people from LifeWay, it's a LifeWay study, one of the vice presidents, he said, you would think that it might be something like, well, they did personal family devotions every day, or they put their kids in Christian school, or they homeschool them, or something like that. He says, those don't make really the list. Uh, one of the ones that makes the list is serving together in the church as a family. That's one of the key findings. Serving together in the church is one of the things that makes for greater resilience. It's not a formula. It's not going to work all the time. But it's one of the key top three. I think the others are Bible reading and um, I can't remember what the third one is. And so those are the things that, 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 uh, that bring resilience. Now, why would that be? Why would that be? Well, it's because... If you're, not, if you're not serving, as the Bible says, like at every page of the New Testament, like every page of the New Testament, if you're not serving, well, you're probably not immersed in God's kingdom priorities. You're probably not. And that's really hard to pass on, and it's really hard to take hold in our lives. It becomes just this thing up here, and you know up here is a mess. It's a mess up here. And so if, if, if you're going to rely on your thinking as you're like, this is it, my thinking, you're, you're in deep trouble. All right. So chapter six, though, focuses on this, the reasoning. Sin doesn't make sense. It no longer has power over you. He's saying if it no longer has power like it used to, why do you keep giving it power? Don't let it be your ruler. Don't let it reign over your life. That's what he's, what he's saying. You are free from the power of sin. So the next point is closely related to this one. Sinning doesn't make sense, number three, because we have a new master. We have a new master. And so he uses a slavery image, which you can tell that Paul partway through becomes a little bit uncomfortable with his own image, which is really interesting. He's like, there comes a certain point where he goes, I'm not sure. It's almost like, I'm not sure this is going to work because who wants to be a slave, right? But, but it, it still accomplishes, so he goes with it. But he lets you know, this has its limits, all right? So look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin... Because we are not under the law, but under grace, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. There, there it is, okay? 
Um, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Um, All right, we'll stop. We'll stop right there. All right, so we have a new master. Now, again, he's doing more than simply appealing to reason here. I, I, I just love this statement in verse 17. I mean, it is, it is so packed. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That's an amazing, amazing statement. Um, it brings in the whole matter in our, in our Christian lives of the importance of obedience. Jesus talked about obedience. He said, you, you really love God, you say? Why wouldn't you obey him if you love him? Obedience is important in the Christian life. But it's not just an obedience like, I, am, I have to do this. It's an obedience from the heart. It's motivated from the heart. It's an understanding. It's like, no, I, I, want, to, I want to please God. So part of spiritual growth, part of our journey is to get to the point where more and more we want to do the right things, a, 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 a change in our desires. So obey from the heart, what? The pattern of teaching. Okay, Jesus, uh, Paul elsewhere talks about training in godliness. There is training that has to happen in the Christian life. It's a pattern of teaching, and it's not just something that you put in your head. It's something that claims your allegiance, because what, what is it? It's the teaching of Christ. It's the the teaching of God, that it should claim our allegiance. Um, Paul is also saying, in effect, look, take the energy that you have poured into sin, serving sin, and put that energy into learning something new in a new way of life and a change of heart. Put your energy into that. It reminds me of a few years ago in the Global Leadership Summit where they were interviewing a, a lady who heads up a ministry that at that time was in some Texas prisons. And the whole idea was when people get out of prison, a lot of times it's very difficult, most of the time, it's very difficult to get a job. And uh, so a lot of times they they return to a life of crime, number one. Number two, uh, they looked at a lot of people in the prison system and they said, some of these people were incredible entrepreneurs. I mean, hardworking entrepreneurs. It's just they were putting all their energies into the wrong thing. And so the program was bringing business people in to mentor prisoners and to um, help them take that energy, knowledge, and know-how that they put into their criminal activity and to apply it into starting their own business because if you can't get a job, they said, you know, well, then you better create a job for yourself. And then when they got out, they continued the mentoring and they gave them access that they normally wouldn't have. Well-rounded type of program. Paul is saying the same thing. Take, take your energies. You used to be this like slave to sin. Become a slave to righteousness, to what's right, relationally right between you and God and you and others. One more thing. Sinning doesn't make sense for anyone because sin leads to death. So verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of. He's saying, look, look, think back to your life. What real lasting benefits did you get out of it? Those things result in death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And I remember in, in Scripture, holiness means whole, integrity, being a whole person in the way that God created you to be, made in His image. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Years ago, I was getting some leadership training. I applied for a, a program down in Colorado Springs at the Center for Creative Leadership, and they had this really great, great price uh, for some pretty intensive training for people from nonprofits, and they only gave a few out, and I got it, and I went down there. I was the only pastor in the whole group. Most of the people were uh, either like... Um, uh, entrepreneurs or worked in business or some of them were government uh, type workers and so we would go through this intense training at night then we'd go back to the hotel at their center and go back to the hotel and then we'd go across the street to a, a bar and grill and we'd eat there and we'd stay there talking afterwards and there was a guy in our group um, of about 24 people that were going we went through kind of a cohort together there was a guy there that owned had started and owned a marketing agency in Seattle. And one of the things that came out during the training is people would talk about their lives because life touches your leadership. And he had shared at some point that he had, uh, he was a recovering alcoholic and that alcoholism almost like took his life away. And, um, and, and so he joined us on the last night and uh, we were sitting there in the bar area of this restaurant, and I looked at him, and because of his story, I said, is it hard for you to be like here? There's alcohol all over, all over this table. He said, nope, it's poison. <laughs> it's just poison to my life. I know if I drink that, it's like it ruins my life. Now, I can't remember the rest of his story. I can't remember how he got from the point where he used to drink poison, <laughs> and it was ruining his life, and he still was drawn to it, and how he got to where he was, where he looked at it, and he said, I literally have no desire for it, okay, which really comes very close to an understanding, at least my understanding of what alcoholism is, um, because it is like, for some people, alcohol is a poison, and so to come to that point, I can almost guarantee you some people can arrive at that on their own, but almost everyone needs help to get there, to get to that settled conviction that, that that is poison. And Paul is saying, look, sin, we need a settled conviction. Sin leads to death. It's poison. We need that. I can't tell you exactly how we get from always to hopefully less and less in our life, um, uh, except to just keep pointing at what the scripture says. It's by God's power. It's cooperating with God's power. We're going to continue to talk about that in this series, but that's how you develop a resilient faith. Sin, Paul is saying, simply doesn't make sense. He's reasoning with us. We're in this battle with sin. There is a renewal that has to happen even of not just our minds but our very desires, which the Scripture places in the heart, um, helping us prodigals see that sin leads 
to knee deep in manure. Not a good life. It's not, it's not to, to see that, to understand it, understanding that sin leads to death. And without going into detail, he keeps telling us that to get to the point where we see that, we have to invest in our new life. If the prodigal in our story at the beginning of the sermon came to see his renewed life as boring and unnecessarily restrictive, doesn't that mean he, doesn't, he never really did get it? He's blaming other things, you know. It was the famine, you know. It wasn't the life I chose. It's, it was all these other things. He never got what it was. And that means he probably never invested himself in his new work, in his new community, and in his new family. Uh, he never came to see his daily work, what he considered a, a grind and being stuck. He never saw it that what he did in his daily job was something that he could do for God's glory. That working hard, even at something he didn't particularly like, could be done in a way that it brought glory to God. He never, he never asked himself, how might I be able, as my father is the like, head honcho, I'm his son, how might I be able to steward my influence in this operation here so that I can lift up other people's lives, so I can encourage the people that work under me or beside me. How, how can I? He never asked that question. He probably failed to go to synagogue on Sabbath and go talk to his rabbi and say, how can I help around here? I know you can't do it all. How can I help around here? I know we are a priesthood. This is an Old Testament concept. There, we are priests before God. We priesthood of all of God's people. Um, he probably never did that. And he probably never got a vision for as his influence would grow, as he would someday maybe share the leadership of that, uh, of that operation that his dad had, or at least grow in influence in the community, that he could be a person who could bring restorative justice uh, to people who were not experiencing justice, uh, the, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the, the four that his Bible told him all the time, you need to be bringing restorative justice to those people. He really, if, if he had in his head that this does not, that this does not, this is a horrible life, he never did any of those things. So the question is, do you understand, do I understand the sin leads to death that it doesn't make any sense? Do we really understand that for our lives? Do, you, do we really understand what grace is, what it is that the Father embraced him and loved him and brought him back home? And what it means to live in that grace? Do you, do I understand the power of sin, what it can do to our lives? Have you offered yourself to God in such a way that you have received training in godliness? Are you training in godliness? Do you know to whom you belong? Who are you, you, who are you united with? 
And what does that look like in everyday daily life? Do you understand that? Every week we celebrate our freedom from the power of sin and our new life in Christ. So, Jesus died so that we might also die to sin. He rose so that we might be alive in him. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. It was pointing to Jesus on the cross, taking our sins upon himself. Let's eat together. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's about a new agreement, a new covenant between me and you. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what we um, can experience in you, that we are united with you, that we have life in you. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has not received you as personal Lord and Savior, has not been reconciled to you by putting their faith in you, becoming a follower of you, calling you to be the leader and Lord of their life. I pray that they would do that right now. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have asked you to be Lord, help us to live in line with that, to really explore every day, what, what can that look like today? What kind of adventure are we on today in serving God right where we are and what we're doing? Help us to have that kind of perspective, to be slaves to righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name.